0: Happy Sunday, Spark. I hope all of you had a great week. Thanks to every single one of you for joining in here every single Sunday to celebrate community, to celebrate each other, to celebrate God. I know that seeing all of you every single week is uh, definitely one of the highlights that I look forward to every week, uh, and I'm sure that that is the same for many of you. And thank you to all of you who are contributing your amazing gifts and talents towards being able to bring these digital services to life every single week. Uh, It's been incredible, and so huge thanks to all of you. Today as we continue on in our study of Luke, we're going to deep dive into uh, a particular passage of Luke, and that is Luke 5.1 to 5.11. And this passage is on the call of Jesus' first disciples. This passage is widely regarded as the catalyst of Jesus's public ministry. It is one of the most cited passages on discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, both in the early days of the Jesus movement and continues to be today. And I think it's particularly important for us to dive into this passage and take a deeper look today, because this story and this moment, uh, I think, really do sort of delineate um, the beginning of a revolution, both in our faith movement and also in the trajectory of the world. And so I'm excited to dig into this with all of you a little bit more today. Now, before we dive into the passage, I want to try to frame today's message around the big existential questions that our biblical text helps us in trying to answer. So I think that uh, the entire biblical narrative um, helps us wrestle and contend with a lot of really big and heavy questions as followers of Jesus, like, you know, who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? And what time is it?" And I want to argue that this particular passage today is uh, trying to answer that last question, what time is it? Or in coronavirus times, it may also help us answer the question, what month is it, since I, and I'm sure many of us have completely lost track of, uh, of, of where we even are in our calendar at this point in time. But in all seriousness, I think that the what time is it question is really the the anchor of what we're going to dig into today and i know it may seem a little bit counterintuitive uh, but let's dive in together um, and explore how that comes to life in this passage so let's go through and read the passage together one day as jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of god he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. So there is a lot to dig into in this passage today, but where I wanna start off is looking at the backdrop of how Jesus, who truly is the ultimate storyteller, not just in this passage, but uh, throughout the course of the gospels, sets the stage for delivering the radical message that he does in this passage. So the Lake of Gennesaret is another way of referring to the Sea of Galilee. And what we see is that in this setting um, you have the sea And you have these rising hillsides that are almost uh, forming a kind of natural amphitheater. So what's happening is uh, the geography is naturally compressing and amplifying the sound as it moves up the mountain. So if you can try to imagine Jesus in this passage for a quick second, right, Uh, on a boat in the water, delivering this powerful message that's about to completely and utterly transform uh, his to-be disciples. His voice and his sound and his message are echoing off of the water and back to the hill to this huge crowd of people who've gathered at the shoreline to watch him. And as we've seen earlier in Luke, uh, we know that Jesus' reputation and his visibility is growing. We know that his ministry is bursting out of the seams of where we traditionally think that he should be teaching, uh, the synagogue, and into these more common everyday venues amongst ordinary people. So as Jesus is speaking from the boat, his sound is echoing off of the water and back to this crowd that's gathered at the inlets. Now delivering compelling messages from a boat uh, probably wasn't unique to Jesus. The first century historian Josephus actually describes his experiences delivering messages from boats uh, when he was the leader of uh, revolutionary forces in Galilee during the first revolt against Rome. So probably not um, a new practice, but nonetheless uh, a very appropriate and intentional one for this particular um, message that Jesus is trying to deliver. Now, if you go and visit the same coastline today, you can experience the same natural phenomenon where if you uh, get into a boat and push off just a little bit away from the land, And, you know, you just talk in your normal, natural speaking voice, pretty much anyone back on those inlets uh, could hear you loud and clear. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus being very thoughtful and resourceful and intentional about the stage and platform that he's choosing at this very specific moment in time to deliver the message that he does. There are two questions that I wanna to try to answer first in uh, today's lesson about Luke 5.1 5, to 5.11. The first is, what does Jesus do? Why does he use this particular miracle in this particular context, in this particular moment to demonstrate his power and who he is? Because there are a lot of things that Jesus could have done or people he could have shown that power to in this moment and he chooses fishermen. And the second question is, how does Jesus do it? How does he reach this completely unexpected uh, and ordinary group of people who, over the course of 11 lines of scripture, um, are willing to leave everything behind, buy into his mission and follow him? And what we're going to do is use uh, the answers to these two questions to help revisit sort of our framing anchor question at the beginning of this lesson around uh, what time is it? So let's go back and revisit that context uh, real fast again about the specific moment that Jesus chooses to walk into this scene. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. All right. So quick moment of empathy here. These fishermen are probably tired, they're exhausted, they're exasperated in this moment. They've been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. So put it putting into context really just how frustrated they're probably feeling, the nets that we're talking about in this passage are probably something called trammel nets. And these are probably uh, one of the most complex but efficient fishing nets that you can use. And so you've got these uh, three layers of mesh and you fish at night so the fish don't see the net, which is probably what uh, Simon and co were doing all night. The trammel nets are probably anywhere uh, between 300 feet long and eight feet wide. So they're physically really difficult to wrangle. One side has corks to keep the net afloat and the other side has lead sinkers. So uh, sometimes what would happen is that the net would be stretched between two boats and then the fishermen would row in a circle to bring the ends of the nets together and try to catch as many fish as possible. So what we're seeing here is that Simon and his fellow fishermen are using a pretty advanced and well vetted uh, fishing contraption to try to catch these fish, and it's not working. Um, And if they had been doing this, and again, this is physically involving, right, It's, it's probably pretty draining. Uh, They've been doing this over and over again all night and caught nothing. Surely they were tired and they were frustrated by the time that Jesus decided to show up. And by the way, there's no coffee. Coffee doesn't get invented for about another 500-ish years. So just imagine the feeling of fatigue and frustration, pulling an all-nighter, fishing, you're not successful, doing the one thing you're really good at, and then Jesus shows up and he's asking you to try again. What the heck, right? Right? It's got to be frustrating. So in a moment where people who are really the experts at what they do, um, doing the thing they know how to do better than everybody else and struggling to do it, that is the moment that Jesus walks in. Probably not the kind of moment anybody, uh, any of us would want anyone walking in and telling us how to do our jobs. So let's just let that very human frustration sink in for a second, right? Uh, Simon and his fellow fishermen, they're the experts. They're successful industry fishers. They're businessmen. They know how to run enterprise. They know the tricks and trade of their work inside out. And so when Jesus shows up, it's probably fair to assume that Simon is just a little bit annoyed, Uh, but he knows this Jesus. Remember that um, the same Jesus earlier in Luke healed his mother-in-law from a fever. And so despite uh, probably that frustration and feeling of being overwhelmed, Simon and his fellow fishermen obey. Jesus's command. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And it's this choice that Jesus makes. A miracle for ordinary people struggling in an ordinary moment that makes this passage of Luke so brilliant to me. Think about this, right? Of all of the people that Jesus could have chosen to perform a miracle for, to show his power to, to turn into his disciples, the high priests, the aristocratic, the people who were influential in society, Jesus is performing a miracle to fishermen and a miracle that only fishermen would understand. What Jesus does is he turns Simon Peter's ordinary boat into a pulpit and uses it to throw the net of the gospel over its hearers. The miracle is way more than just a raw display of Jesus's power. The miracle itself is a metaphor for discipleship. It's a symbol of what's about to happen in the Jesus movement. It's a sign of the disciples upcoming mission and call and all of it is happening at a perfect moment, at a perfect time, where these ordinary fishermen are struggling with something that they ordinarily wouldn't have to struggle with. To me, the fact that Jesus picks this miracle, of all of the miracles he could have picked, which involves the fishermen physically, emotionally, mentally, is really Jesus establishing and making it crystal clear to us that in order for us to be followers of Jesus, it's gonna mean participating actively in his ministry, not passively, not watching, not being on the sidelines, but being in it, feeling it, it being hard. And that's what it really means to understand what the kingdom of God on earth looks like. What Jesus is doing here, which I find so beautiful and compelling, is that he's turning an ordinary occupation into a spiritual opportunity. And he's doing it for Simon Peter and for the fishermen in this passage, but he's also doing it for every single one of us as we navigate how to be followers of Jesus in our day-to-day and very ordinary occupations and lives. As we continue on in our passage, we see a really interesting and puzzling line that I want to dig into a little bit more. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus's knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. I am a sinful man. Kind of feels like a weird line, right? It doesn't feel like the first natural response uh, that Simon Peter would have after witnessing the miracle that he just saw. So what exactly is he trying to say here? I think that we might be able to look uh, earlier in our biblical story, to learn more about what is going on here for Simon. Um, And there's probably a broader context here for Peter that the miracle evokes. Robert Alter is a professor of comparative literature at Berkeley. He studies narrative and storytelling in the Bible, which is like basically the coolest intersection of things ever, the Bible and storytelling. And he introduced something called the type scene uh, to studies of the Hebrew Bible. And so a type scene is basically a literary convention that a storyteller uses across a set of scenes uh, to illustrate similarities, differences, um, and growth that happens between people and places in a story. And what we find is that these repetitive scenes and situations that happen in stories usually can be categorized by broad level themes or motifs. Uh, The type scene uh, probably originated in the work of Homer Uh, And what we see is that there are these repetitive compositional patterns in Greek Greek epics like the Iliad. Um, And if you look at some of Homer's great poems, you see these repeating scenes like the arrival scene, the message scene, the voyage scene, the assembly scene, the arming of the hero scene, uh, and a whole bunch of other scenes that repeat themselves uh, over the course of time in Homer's work to essentially show how characters, even in the same situations, are growing and evolving and responding to certain situations over time. And it's such a, a clever storytelling tactic to employ because what it lets us see is when the circumstances are very similar, how do our characters respond differently or do they respond differently? What have they learned? So, some biblical scholars actually argue that the narrative arc that we're seeing in Luke 5, 1 to five eleven um, is actually a type scene of something called a commission story that we've actually seen earlier in our biblical text in the book of Isaiah. So to recap, uh, the book of Isaiah was compiled hundreds of years prior, and it covers the prophetic voice surrounding Israel's impending Babylonian captivity. and. Uh, Uh, It talks about how God's judgment would purify Israel and prepare his people for the upcoming messianic king and for a new Jerusalem. So Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight uh, tells the story of Isaiah getting a call from God and Isaiah protesting that call from God. So Isaiah says, "'Woe is me, for I am undone, "'because I am a man of unclean lips, "'and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips,' for my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of armies. Sounds familiar, right? Both Isaiah and Simon Peter really do feel the magnitude of their unworthiness in the presence of the holy. Both are protesting their unworthiness. Um, A seraphim flies to Isaiah and cleanses his lips. Jesus has a cleansing word for Simon Peter. Both Isaiah and Simon Peter prove faithful to the call. And so the sinfulness Uh, that we're talking about in Luke 5.1 to 5.11 is probably less about uh, Isaiah and about Simon Peter's own sin as it is about how they feel around God's just complete holiness. The type scene um, that we're seeing in both Luke and Isaiah uh, actually has a couple parts to it. The first part is the epiphany. God is calling us in some way. Then we have the reaction which is our resistance and disbelief to that call. We have reassurance, which is the explanation of that call again to us. And then there's the commission, which is God's explicit command or duty to us. It happens again and again and again in our biblical story, right? We see it happen with Moses. We see it happen with Job. We see it happen with Isaiah and Luke. And all of us probably have examples of moments in our lives where we have experienced a commission story in some capacity, God calling us to something, us protesting that call because it's uncomfortable or difficult or challenging in some capacity, and then us having to work through that challenge um, to obey God's explicit command or duty to us. I want to turn to the last few lines in our passage today. Uh, These few lines to me are so powerful because they really drive the point home of, of what Jesus is trying to do here. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. In other translations of this passage, fish for people is actually written as catching people. And the word catch uh, actually more literally means uh, to capture alive or to spare alive. And it's building on language that we see in the Old Testament about warren hunting. So we see this language echoed most explicitly in the book of Jeremiah, so in chapter 6 16 verses 14 through 16, there's a passage um, that's about God sending fishermen and hunters into the world to find and restore his people from exile. But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. There's something in this language and this metaphor that is so powerful to me. So let's allow it to sink in for a moment. Jesus is telling Simon and the fishermen in Luke 5, 1 to five eleven. I want you to throw the kind of net that's gonna take people who are dead and make them alive. Cast the kind of net that'll take the dead, the dying, the lost, the disinherited, and bring them to life so they can come back home. Mm-hmm. Like Jeremiah's call, for the people of Israel who had forsaken the covenant, turned their backs on God to come home, Jesus does the same. When Jesus, just like Jeremiah, calls the fishermen, he is starting a movement, just like Jeremiah, to bring Israel and all of the people of Israel who've turned their backs on God and forsaken the covenant to come back home into a renewed relationship with each other, with the world, and with God. So catching fish here is really a prophetic symbol for the mission in which Simon Peter and others are going to participate moving forward. And uh, it's amazing because Jesus himself, in the very act of performing this particular miracle, is himself engaged in catching alive, in transforming and in bringing home. I think that's incredible. So at the beginning of today's message spark, I argued that I think that Luke 5, 1 to 5, 11 is trying to help us answer the question, what time is it? And to come back to that question, I really want to focus on the words from now on. This phrase is so key because what Jesus is doing is building a very clear delineation from everything that once was to everything that will be. This moment in Jesus's ministry explicitly calls out a radical break from the past. It asks us to leave everything behind despite the consequences to follow. In this moment, Simon Peter's career as a fisherman is over as he knows it. It's probably not literally over because we see a scene with a lot of parallels to this one um, in the Gospel of John where Jesus appears to Peter and others after the resurrection and they're still engaged in the vocation of fishing. But Simon Peter's career is over as he knows it. Um, he'll never see his vocation in the same way again, and it has a completely new meaning because he now follows Jesus's call. There is a pretty radical transformation we see in just eleven verses of Scripture in Luke five one to five eleven. Simon Peter, whose profession and life represented security, stability, status, identity, and purpose, is now ready to leave all of that behind, all of it. And we see this revolution that Jesus started here, that call to commission, that ask of us, repeated again and again and again in the book of Acts, where throughout the narrative arc of Acts, we see ordinary people leaving uh, their secure and stable lives, putting it all behind because they buy into the Jesus movement. Jesus is saying, look, like, stop paying attention to what I'm asking of everybody else around you. Pay attention to what I'm asking of you, which is really just to follow me here and now. This is how the word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. Jesus calls us and demands everything of us because he's already given everything to us. The ask is so radical and so revolutionary that we often can't even imagine when it's going to come to us and how we're going to respond and how we're going to work through all of that protesting because it is such a significant ask and call. Simon Peter certainly didn't see it coming in his story, and we sometimes don't see it coming in our story. N.T. Wright, I think, sums up the importance of the what time is it question really well in his daily devotional Lent for Everyone series. Uh, I absolutely love this passage. He says, family and possessions, the two things Jesus says you have to give up. God's people are being redefined and these identity markers won't matter anymore. Cling onto them and you'll be like people keeping the curtains closed when the sun has risen. That was nighttime. This is daytime. Jesus' challenge then comes to all of us at a point where we are tempted to settle down and be comfortable with the way things are. No, he says, that would be like someone wanting to build a tower or fight a battle without thinking out what's involved. You need to think through, to pray through, what it's going to mean to be a follower, a learner, a disciple. You don't want to be left high and dry when God's kingdom goes forward and you turn out to have settled for something less. That paragraph. I want to emphasize this one line again in what N.T. Wright said, Jesus's challenge then comes to all of us at the point where we are tempted to settle down and be comfortable with the way things are. Socially, we have become so accustomed as a society to alleviating discomfort quickly We want to crush pretty much all discomfort at the moment it pops up. I know that I do a lot of times. I'm sure that many of us do as well. And we're at a moment in time in America where being unwilling to sit in discomfort uh, is especially amplified in the context of systemic racism and injustice that is part of our country's DNA and our nation's continued failure and response to it. There's an essay called Privileged that Kyle Korver, a basketball player on the Milwaukee Bucks, wrote last year when he still played for the Utah Jazz. And I think that the contents of this essay really do exemplify uh, what it means for followers of Jesus to contend with the world today. So in his essay, Kyle Korver talks about the privilege and contradictions of being a white man in a predominantly black league. And to summarize the story, Kyle's teammate uh, and friend, when they were both on the Hawks together and on the Jazz together, his name is Tabo Cephalosha, was arrested by the NYPD outside of a New York City nightclub in 2015. The police were reportedly there to break up a fight, uh, but instead they shoved Tabo to the ground. They handcuffed him, they broke his leg, and they charged him with a whole bunch of random charges like misdemeanor obstructing, government administration, disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest. What did Tabo do? He did nothing. He was just a black man who walked out of a nightclub. Tabo ultimately did sue the NYPD for police brutality. Uh, He settled with the city, but the story fell out of the news cycle and life moved on but not for Kyle Korver. In his essay, Kyle talks about the first feeling he had when he heard about his friend and teammate's arrest. And Kyle's first feeling as a white man was that he sort of blamed Tabo. He was thinking of things that Tabo might have done wrong to justify or deserve what had happened to him. Uh, And Kyle goes on, of course, to talk about his own self-awareness and realizations, where he had royally messed up his own ignorance and his commitment to action moving forward. But there's one thing in specific that Kyle says, uh, that I think really sums up everything about the commission that Jesus calls us to. Here's a quick excerpt from the essay. But I look like the other guy, and whether I like it or not, I am beginning to understand how that means something. What I'm realizing is no matter how passionately I commit to being an ally, no matter how unwavering my support is for NBA and WNBA players of color, I am still in this conversation from the privileged perspective of opting into it, which of course means that on the flip side, I could just as easily opt out of it. Every day, I am given that choice. I am granted that privilege based on the color of my skin. In other words, I can say every right thing in the world. I can voice my solidarity with Russ after what happened in Utah. I can evolve my position on what happened to Tabo in New York. I can be that weird dude in Get Out bragging about how he'd have voted for Obama a third term. I can condemn every racist heckler I've ever known, but I can also fade into the crowd. And my face can blend in with the faces of those hecklers any time I want. That one line spark, the privilege of opting in when you could just as easily opt out. I think Jesus' answer to the question, what time is it, in Luke 5, 1 to five eleven is that it's time to choose to opt in now and to stay opted in even when it gets really, really hard. We're in the middle of a global pandemic a country that most days feels like it's falling apart, completely unprecedented times. And this is a forced, unanticipated break in some ways like the very break that Simon Peter experienced during Jesus's calling, from literally everything that we once knew, from friends, from community, from work, from identity, from comfort, from normalcy. And given this forced break, I would challenge ourselves to ask the question, What tempts us to be comfortable with the way things are? What are our boats? What anchors us to certainty, security, planning it out, having the answers, knowing what happens next, being comfortable opting out because we can? It's not necessarily about quitting our jobs or working full-time in ministry or about not continuing to live our lives, but I would ask us every day, What are the systems that we, whether intentionally or not, encourage, support, and perpetuate because questioning it challenges our comfort? I know I struggle with that every single day. What are the things that we'd be willing to feel and do if we were able to be more uncomfortable? Jesus calls us fairly explicitly to follow him into the deep unknown, and at no point in time does he tell us it's going to be easy. In fact, there are moments where Jesus knows that it can be and will be dangerous. Just like Simon Peter and his fishermen felt the danger of their ship sinking. Just like the threat each and every one of us feel sometimes when we decide to say or do the uncomfortable thing and what that means for our status and identities in our families, our friend circles, and our communities. As disciples of Jesus, we have to contend with being followers in a world that will ask us to do more than we sometimes feel we can. What is anchoring us and holding us back from contending, from opting in, now, today, every day, when it makes us most uncomfortable? What might feel dangerous because it challenges the status quo of who we think we are? So what time is it spark? It's time to opt in. To follow Jesus is to imitate. To follow Jesus is not to await a later redemption, but it is to act now. The radical call to discipleship happens when we least expect it, and it demands something of us that isn't easy. But what revolution is easy? The time to let go of our boats and sink our ships is now. Spark, let's use this time to reflect on Jesus's life-giving ask of us by going into our communion. Let's reflect on Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection through a tradition that's been passed on to us from the very beginning for in the night in which he was betrayed our lord jesus took the bread blessed and broke it giving it to his disciples saying take eat this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me likewise after supper he took the cup gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink this all of you This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.